I'm starting a new mini-series here. This series we're going to be doing just three parts. It's entitled Lost, Lost Sheep, The Lost Coin, and The Lost Son. And we're not going to take on all three of those today. We're just going to deal with the first one. Uh, but in this first one, every time I think of the lost sheep, I think of this little children's book that uh, we have some very good Australian friends, and they gave us this Australian book. And so that means when you read an Australian book from Australian friends, how do you have to read it? In Australian. I'm glad you think the same way. So this one is Cecil, the lost sheep. And children, I know you already had one story, but you're going to get another one today. You ready? All right. Let's see if I can find my accent. If I lose it, just pretend I haven't. Is that the first page? I guess it is. Cecil, the lost sheep. What sort of animals does this man have? Rabbits? No. He doesn't have rabbits. Giraffes? No. He doesn't have giraffes. Or they don't get any mention in this story. But sheep? Yes, he has sheep. One hundred sheep, including Cecil. One day, Cecil was daydreaming. Boring, boring, boring. All I do is hang around with sheep, eat grass, wander down to the river for a bit of a drink, and eat more grass. Maybe I could run away and get a bike or join a band. Cecil looked right. Cecil looked left. He jumped over his rock and he hid. From behind the rock, he snuck behind the tree. And from behind the tree, he ran over the hills and to the mountains. Yes, the mountains. It was all capitals. I have to read it that way. He reached the mountains and discovered they were high and steep. Cecil was not deterred. He began climbing higher and higher, and it got steeper and steeper and steeper. He climbed and climbed until he couldn't climb up, and he couldn't climb down. Cecil was stuck. Crikey, mate. He sat on the edge of the ledge and started thinking, I could shout for help, but what would happen if the shepherd finds me? He might whack me with a big stick, crack, then grab me by the leg and drag me home. Bump, 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 and tie me to a tree without any dinner. Back home, the shepherd was counting his sheep. One Terry, two Kevin, three Browen, four Lucidia, 96 Meredith, 97, the other Meredith, 99, Amir. Ah, Cecil! Cecil was missing! The shepherd ran to the rock and found hoofprints leading behind the tree. He ran behind the tree and found hoofprints leading over the hills to the mountains. Yes, the mountains. It's all capitals again. The mountains were high and steep. The shepherd climbed higher and higher and it got steeper and steeper. And when he thought he couldn't climb any further, he wasn't sure if he could climb back down. He heard a noise. That's how they sound in Australia. Cecil was saved. What did the shepherd do? Did he crack Cecil with his stick? Crack? No. Did he grab Cecil by the leg and drag him down the mountain? Bump, bump, bump. No. He was so glad that he found his lost sheep that he put Cecil on his shoulders and carried him home. When they got home, did the shepherd tie Cecil to the tree without any dinner? No. Instead, he threw a huge party and everyone stayed up way past their bedtime. Cecil, the lost sheep, had been found. <laughs> we like that little story. And the pictures are pretty, pretty fun to go along with it. But really it gets the, the main gist of the story quite, quite well. And as we think about this story and sheep and shepherds, I can't help but think in John 10, verse 11, where Jesus says, I am, what kind of shepherd? The good shepherd. Which tells me there must be some bad shepherds. 
that do whack with the stick and drag them home and all these things. But Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Says the good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. And if you read the rest of that, it talks about the good shepherd versus a hireling, meaning somebody who really doesn't care about the sheep. They're just wanting some pay in their pocket. But when something big comes along and the verse talks about a wolf that comes along, the hireling flees, but the good shepherd will not flee. What does the good shepherd do? He protects and guards the herd from the wolf. I think of Psalm 23, verse 2. I guess it begins in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I'm in want of nothing. Why? Because he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. That's the good shepherd. Providing and taking care of all the needs. Maybe you remember some of these pictures as well. We read these to our kids. And I remember as a kid, this picture in particular, there was one thing I was always looking for. Can you find it on this page? Here's the good shepherd. He's damming up this fast flowing creek to make it nice and slow. And here's the sheep off to the side. They're all behaving themselves and together. But there's one sheep that is starting to stray. Can you find it? I'm so disappointed. Yes, you see it. It's right up here. There he goes. What's happening? No, no, no. Come back. Is he being distracted? Is he trying to be obstinate? Does he just want to get away? What's going on? Little sheep, Cecil, come back. And all of that to set up the idea of a good shepherd in this story that goes by awfully fast in just a few verses. I think it's just seven verses. I know it's part of three different parables, but we're going to break them down in pieces because I know you like lunch. So do I. We're going to pick up this story of the parable of the lost sheep that Jesus told. It's in Luke chapter 15, and we're beginning in verse 1. And it says, then all the tax collectors, who are the tax collectors? These are the traitors of the Jews, right? They decided to play for the other team, if you will, and collect taxes for the Romans, the hated Romans. Yeah, we don't like tax collectors at all. They have a special place, a special category for us. So then all the tax collectors and sinners... Who are the sinners? Well, you know the type. Those people. Suffice it to say, we're all sinners. But in the context of this story, no, no, no. Those were the tax collectors and sinners. They're also a subcategory, a subset of society, and we don't like to associate with them. How come? Well, they do things we don't approve of. They inhale things they shouldn't inhale. They eat things they shouldn't eat. They go places they shouldn't go. And they spend time at people's houses overnight that they shouldn't. No, these are sinners. We have to be very careful not to associate with that kind. And so it says, And all the tax collectors, all the sinners, drew near to him, Jesus, To hear him. Isn't that interesting? We'll come back to that. And the Pharisees and scribes complain, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so it's in that context that he speaks the parable. And so here you have church leadership that is incensed that Jesus is hanging out with the wrong crowd. Tax collectors and sinners. Of all things, I mean, this is bad press, especially for the one who thinks and is claiming to be the Messiah. Ha! You've got to be kidding me. 
Now, some like to paint the picture that if Jesus is there with them and he's eating with them, then he must be smoking joints with them and drinking alcohol with them. No, 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 not at all. Jesus was not participating in their lifestyle, but rather he was compassionate towards this group of people. There's a difference. Yet somehow they didn't feel judged, they didn't feel condemned, they didn't feel pushed to the side or marginalized, because what happens? They are the ones that are drawing near to him to hear him. You know, sometimes we don't, we think that we're really sly in our ways that we just kind of turn a shoulder to certain ones that we don't want to be part of the conversation. Or we say things that really can't be pinned back. You said this. No, I didn't. Oh, yes, you did, very plainly. Well, I disguised it. You know what I'm talking about? And people get the hint real quickly. Oh, I guess this isn't a place for me. I guess I'm not welcome here. I guess maybe I should just leave. But somehow Jesus is different, isn't he? Not only does he know the scriptures, but he seems to know them better than the scribes and the Pharisees. He's not judgmental. He's not condemning. I mean, after all, as a sinner, I don't need anybody else to point out my own faults and failings and shortcomings. I know them very well. Thank you very much. But here's somebody who speaks hope to my situation who tries to bring me from where I am to a higher place. And he does it with grace. He does it with love. He does it with kindness. I like this guy. I want to hang out with this guy. And the church doesn't know how to handle this. They're just incensed. They're angry. They're frustrated. They're upset. It reminds me of another story earlier in this gospel, Luke chapter 7, when Simon the Pharisee was thinking the very same thing as Mary the prostitute brought the alabaster jar and anointed Jesus' feet. Do you remember that story? And what was his thought in his head? He said, this man, if he were a prophet, doubt, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. She's one of those. Oh, how can he allow? No, if he were a prophet, no way. This is not possible. Same mentality. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, again, are incensed, they're offended. And Jesus, being as gracious as he always is, isn't just seeking after the tax collectors and the sinners, but he extends the sinner umbrella to include the scribes and Pharisees. And so instead of just blasting them, he says, let me tell you a story, a parable, three in fact. And so that's the context with which we move forward. But before we get there, we have this comment on these first few verses. How was it then that the publicans and sinners were drawn to Jesus? Fair question. They knew that the explanation lay in the very words that had uttered as scornful charge, this man receiveth sinners. This was their charge. You're doing a bad thing. You're receiving sinners. And why were they drawn? For that very same reason. This man was receiving sinners. The souls who came to Jesus felt in his presence that even for them there was escape from the pit of sin. Now don't misunderstand. We need to call sin by its right name. I'm not saying that we should just invite sin into our living room and let's just get cozy with sin. No, that's not what I'm saying. But there's a difference between sin and sinners. All of us are sinners. All of us are God's kids. Some are involved in a lot more than others. And the Bible talks about how they need more grace, don't they? But Jesus is not trying to encourage their sin. He's offering them a way out of their sin. 
Again, I don't imagine he's condemning. I don't imagine he's wagging the finger in their face. You should know better. Of course they should know better. We all should know better. Shouldn't we? Yet we find ourselves in the category of sinner. And sometimes I think, in fact, I was reading on something else. It talked about the the greatest witness is not with words, but when they see your life, your example, how you live, and that in of itself convicts their heart. Lord, give me the right words to say so they will understand and just hit their head on the foot of the cross and know that there's a problem and change their ways and come back to church and repent and everything will be just right. So give me the words. And what if Jesus is wanting to tell us so many times over and over, there's no words. Quit with the words. You've said enough words. Maybe just live it. Maybe live a little more love and grace and compassion. Yeah, but they're going to think. No, they know good and well. You've made it very plain and very clear how you feel. You have raised these children for how many years now? They know where you stand on the issues. You don't need to remind them yet again. Just love them. Be gracious towards them. And when you have opportunity, tell them how wonderful Jesus is. Really what we find throughout the Gospels is the more degraded by sin, the more they were objects of Jesus' compassion. Do you see that when you read through? The more they wandered from him, the more earnest the longing, the greater the sacrifice to bring about their rescue. Sometimes we get this picture of Jesus that when I do a bad thing, he steps back. Now, Dave, you knew better than that. You shouldn't, oh, you're going to, oh, oh, I, I don't, do you know that guy? I don't know about that. We, we just imagine God stepping back when really when we do wrong, he steps forward. He pursues. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Micah 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in, what's the word? Mercy. What's a better motivator, anger or mercy? Have <laughs> mercy. And so Jesus, again, addresses their concerns with this story. Continuing on, verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, Most sheep would have maybe two more lambs a year. You know, things happen. There's an infection on the leg or something might take place. And, well, you know, that's just, that's part of the business. You know, we hate to lose any of them, but sometimes things just happen. No, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And so again, I'm going back to this storybook that I grew up with. Here, this shepherd is putting oil on maybe some, some way, places that they got scratched up or whatever, and he's counting the sheep. I like the idea that he knows them by name, right? And he goes through, and he counts, and there's 99. One is missing. There's this knot in my back. I'm hungry. My feet hurt. It looks like another one of these daily afternoon storms coming in. I'm just going to, you know, maybe I'll Google how easy can sheep find their way home. Maybe I'll just, you know, leave some little side barn thing open with a little food and, and I'll say a prayer. Good luck, little buddy. Is that what the good shepherd does? Just one. 99. They're safe in the pen. He leaves the 99. He has to light this torch, if you will, to search until he finds it. Circle that word in your Bible, until. 
He goes after the one which is lost until he finds it. That little word, until, encompasses an eternity of determination. At any cost, I will find you, Jesus says. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep searching and searching and looking and looking until I find you. Some of us might say, well, I'm going to look till 1030. If that little Baba doesn't show up, he's bye-bye Baba. Stupid little sheep. What was he thinking anyway? Wandering off. I told him, I told him. How many times did I tell him? I must have told him a hundred times. Stay with the herd. Don't go out there, it's dangerous. Goes off. I'm tired, my back hurts, I'm hungry, I'm hangry. Little Baba wants to go off flitting over into the fields on the other side. Is that the good shepherd? Not at all. Verse 5, And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends. They were trying to sleep. Hey, I found the sheep! It's here! It's on my shoulders! He calls his friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. And then verse 7, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Now we'll come back to that too. But he rejoices. He searches for the lost until he finds. And then he plucks up that one. He doesn't whack it with his stick. He doesn't drag him home. He doesn't tell him off. He says, no, come with me. I will carry you home. This parable reveals to us three beautiful, probably more, but at least three beautiful characteristics of God. The first, God always initiates the seeking. Don't forget that. I believe that the divine purpose of God is that all people might be reconciled to Him. I don't believe God waits for fallen humanity to search for Him. I believe God searches for us. In the beginning, we say God's search for lost people. Genesis 3, we see the fall of man as they eat the fruit. Genesis 3, verse 8 and 9, God comes seeking after Adam and Eve. God could have said, clean up your act. Get your life straightened out. Then I'll come down and see you. No, God came after them and said, Adam, Eve, where are you? Where are you? And we see this same, this same theme, if you will, echoing throughout the Old and New Testament. Moses, trying to mind his own business out in the field. And the same, where are you, Moses? It was in the desert that God came down to Moses in search of him in the form of a burning bush. You remember the story. Moses was not trying all sorts of means and methods to search for God. God came to him. We could talk about the children of Israel. It's through Moses that God is seeking after the children of Israel to restore them. Again, who's the initiator? God. We could talk about Jonah. God is seeking after Jonah. And Jonah tries to run the other way, doesn't he? Yet we see God give up and say, well, never mind. No, he continually seeks after Jonah. And through Jonah, we see God seeking after the Ninevites. I mean, it's just replete throughout Scripture. We could talk about Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, who is this guy anyway, Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, he's one of the worst of the worst of all time. He was arrogant, self-centered, morally corrupt, debased leader of the world, 
I mean, everyone hated Nebuchadnezzar. He would kill you on a whim and not care. Is there any hope for such a man, we might ask? But again, we see God seeking after Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because he gave him the dream. He could have given any number of people the dream, but he gave it to Nebuchadnezzar. Sure, it's because he had power and influence and other things, but I think it was because he was seeking after the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. What does he say later in Daniel 3, verse 28? Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Later in chapter 4, he says, It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. That's Nebuchadnezzar. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. This horrible individual has the privilege of writing in Scripture. And how did it happen? God initiated. God sought after this man. It's really nothing new. We see it throughout Scripture. God is continually seeking after lost humanity. In fact, we could even make the point that in this cosmic universe that we find ourselves in, there's one planet that has sinned, and 99 perhaps others have not. And God says, I'm going to seek and save that lost system there called earth and he keeps using person after person after person I didn't put their pictures up here you have an imagination you're fine there's Jonah there's Nebuchadnezzar but Jesus can't hold himself back any further and he has to come himself why to seek and to save that which was lost that's why he came it's the heart of who he is he can't contain himself No, God always initiates the seeking. And not one of us here have responded to God out of our own accord. It is only out of response to Him seeking us that we're here today. God always initiates the seeking. Christ's Object Lessons 187 says, The shepherd goes out to search for one sheep, the very least that can be numbered. Is it true? Yeah, just one. So if there had been but one lost soul, Christ would have died for that one. I mean, that's about as cliched as they come. We've heard it our whole lives. But stop and think about that. You're the only person that needs what he has to offer. Put your name in the blank. I'm not worthy of that. I can look out here and see people worthy of that, but I'm not worthy of that. You would go through all of that for me? Absolutely, I did. I did. To seek and to save that which was lost. Dave, you were lost. Again, a quote from Christ's Object Lessons. No sooner does the sheep go astray than the shepherd is filled with grief and anxiety over one. He counts and recounts the flock. And when he is sure that one sheep is lost, maybe I miscounted. Let's try again. One, two, three, four, four, 99. Oh, one more time. Now that one sort of moved. Maybe I just made a mistake. I'm going to get to 100 this time. And he recounts and he recounts. No, I'm missing. Just one. And he's filled with grief and anxiety. He slumbers not. He leaves the 99 within the fold and goes in search of the strange sheep. The darker and more tempestuous the night and the more perilous the way, the greater is the shepherd's anxiety and the more earnest his search. He makes every effort to find the one lost sheep. Every effort. Every possible means, every avenue, there will not be one rock left unturned. And that was for you, and that was for me. 
Friends, if this is the character of Christ, if this is how Jesus responds to one that is lost, and if we're to have his character, then we as a church need to respond in kind. But sadly, this is not the way we typically respond, is it? I heard the statistic that 2% of Christians share their faith on a regular basis. 2%. And what's the excuse? Well, pastor, it's not my gift. I'm sorry, but you look up the gifts, and sharing your faith is not listed as one of the gifts. That's standard equipment. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is standard equipment. That means I will go where he wants me to go. I will say what he wants me to say to whom he wants me to say it. You know what standard equipment is, right? You go and you purchase a car. All the options. You better be careful, husbands, how many options you let your wife pick because it'll all add up and tally at the bottom. Sunroof, check. Power door locks, check. Power windows, check. You know, some sound system, navigation, check, check, check. I have yet to see a dealership where they say, do you want the steering wheel and the tires for the car? Why would that be so funny? Because it's standard equipment. How are you going to drive it off the lot? Yes, I'm looking for a car with the steering wheel and tires. Oh, sure, look around. All of them have it. It's standard equipment. For the disciple of Jesus Christ, it's standard, yet we think, oh no, it's a spiritual gift, and therefore it's somebody else's gift. And so there's, can you think of one lost? I imagine you can think of several. You didn't even probably have to go outside your own household or, or family circle or this church, and there's somebody that the Holy Spirit has brought to your mind. My question for you and for me is very simple. Is this the attitude? Am I going to make every effort? Am I filled with grief and anxiety? Or do I just sleep it off? Sometimes our response is, well, I mean, they know we're here. The sign's still down by the road. We're still in the same building. They can come back when they want to come back. It's kind of basic, but you're missing it here. The sheep is... Lost? Maybe you've never been lost before? It's a little bit scary. I get lost often enough, I have an expression I've learned. I think we're lost. Why do you say that, honey? Because I've been lost before and this is what it looks like. I don't know where I am. I don't know which turn to take. I'm lost. They'll come back when they're ready to come back. I don't know where you are. Hello, 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 hello. Where are you? Are you? Are you? Are you? Are you? I didn't even practice that. <laughs> we think the lost will just find their way on their own, but if that were the case, they wouldn't be lost. Are we as tenacious in seeking the lost as Jesus is? Continuing on, it says he climbs. It's talking about the good shepherd, the steepest heights. He goes to the very edge of the precipice at the risk of his own life. Thus he searches while the cry, growing fainter, tells him that his sheep is ready to die. At last his effort is rewarded and the lost is found. How many sheep would we find if we went looking? They're stuck. They're in a rut. They don't know which way is up. And they need somebody to come and say, you're a sinner. No, they don't. Just be caring. Just be compassionate. Bring them some food. One church I pastored, uh, not a very large church. I got the whole directory of members. And I didn't know, being the new guy, who was a member and, and attended regularly and who hadn't been in 20 years. I didn't know. I just went down through the list and it was before GPSs, so I was lost most of the day. But I'd find a few people, and I would knock on their door. I'd introduce myself. I'm the new pastor of the such-and-such Seventh-day Adventist church. And at first, they're like, am I in trouble? 
What did I do? No, I just wanted to, to say hello and introduce myself. And you had a beautiful yard and make a few comments and try and get them to be at ease a little bit. Is there anything I can pray with you about before I leave? Uh, yeah, sure, okay. And then I would go. I know nothing of their background. Sometimes they would share, but most of the time they wouldn't. Lo and behold, what would happen the following Sabbath? Not just once or twice, it happened many times. Somebody comes back to church. And they say, what's this person doing here? They haven't been here forever. I don't know. I just visited with them this last week. Ah! 20 years, this person's been lost. Thought nobody cared. You get the picture. And it's not rocket science. Just go looking for them. Knock on their door. Say some nice things. Give them something. And say, we're thinking about you. That in and of itself can be enough. But if it's not, keep pursuing. How many lost sheep could we find? My fear is far more than we want to admit. Far, far more. Better keep going. We're going to be here all day. Maybe someone's here today. Maybe someone's watching online if they can. And they're lost and they don't know how to get back to God. But friends, not one of God's sheep, not one of God's kids is overlooked. Not one is too insignificant for him to risk all and go after. Yes, you may have made mistakes. You may have made huge mistakes. And you're wondering if there's any hope for the likes of you. But this story shows us that God takes the initiative first. While you were in rebellion to him even, he went forth to seek you. And too often, like the scribes and Pharisees, we have the idea that I first must repent and clean myself up first. This is too embarrassing. I can't let him see me like this. So I have to figure this out on my own. Good luck with that. Without the grace of Christ in your life, good luck with that. We think that my repentance, I somehow earn my favor back with heaven. But in the parable of the lost sheep, Christ teaches that salvation does not come through our seeking after God, but through God seeking after us. We just respond. We do not repent in order that God may love us, but he reveals to us his love that we may repent. Some of you said, I don't know. Let me say it again. We do not repent in order that God may love us. He's not standing there like this. Have you repented yet? Are you sorry? Are you really sorry? Prove it. That's not the posture. We do not repent in order that God may love us, but he reveals to us his love in order that we may repent. It's that parent that keeps loving and loving and loving and loving until there's a breakthrough. How can you keep loving me when I'm just so terrible to you? Because you're my son, you're my daughter. I don't care how you treat me. I'm always going to love you. Isn't that how God is? Can we treat him badly? Absolutely, we can. Does that block his love? It doesn't. He keeps pursuing and pursuing and seeking. Romans 5, verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's that reality that melts the heart and brings about repentance. We've got to keep rolling here. God always initiates the seeking as one of the characteristics of God. Secondly, God is so gracious. So often it seems that the only people we're gracious with is ourselves. We can make a mistake. And we have a reason to justify ourselves, but we have little or no grace for anybody else. They have to be perfect. Far often, we assume the role of the scribes and Pharisees. And what do we do? It says in verse 2, we complain. 
We complain. And what do we often say about the lost? I already went through that. I'm going to keep moving. Another quote here. When one who has wandered, wandered far in sin seeks to return to God, he will encounter... Now, this is sad to me. But you know it's true. So one's wandered off far in sin, seeks to return to God, he will encounter criticism and distrust. There are those who will doubt whether his repentance is genuine or will whisper, he has no stability. I don't believe that he'll hold out. These persons are not doing the work of God, but the work of Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren. Ouch. So somebody comes back to church and we say, <laughs> we've seen this before. They're talking the talk. Let's see you walk the walk, buddy. This isn't for real. This isn't genuine. You'll never last. And we say that from our pious position as a church elder, pastor, whatever. And in that moment, who are we playing? We don't even want to say it. We're playing Satan, the accuser of the brethren. Where's the open arm that comes around and says, I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome. Will you sit with me? No, they're sitting with me. No, we're going to have to sit together because they're sitting with me. Every soul whom Christ has rescued is called to work in his name for the saving of the lost. Every soul. When you turn from those who seem unpromising and unattractive, do you realize that you are neglecting the souls for whom Christ is seeking? You're working opposite of Jesus at that moment. At the very time when you turn from them, they may be in the greatest needs of your compassion in every assembly of worship. Does that include here this morning? There are souls longing for rest and peace. Are you going to give it to them? Well, a cold shoulder is just easier. We have a hike planned for today. Honestly, they'd kind of ruin it. They're still rough around the edges. Bad example. The list goes on, so hmm, not today. The lost sheep is not brought back to the fold. It wanders until it perishes. And many souls go down to ruin for want of a hand stretched out to save. I don't know what to do. Just stretch out your hand. But it's COVID. That's real cute. Do something. That's it. Show that you care about them. Admit the fact, I don't know what to do, but I want to do something for you. How about this? Don't ask if you can do something. Just do it. Just do it. I wonder if they'd like, of course they would. Just do it. They may hate the thing, but they'll be touched by the fact that you did it. And that's the point. This is another sad quote. Angels weep while human eyes are dry and hearts are closed to pity. Oh, the lack of deep, soul-touching sympathy for the tempted and the erring. Oh, for more of Christ's spirit and for less, far less of self. Angels are weeping for these people and we just can't be bothered. They're in the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Diamond doesn't. Have mercy on us. No, Jesus is quite the opposite. He's very gracious. Here's a description of how Jesus handles. He does not scold because it has caused him so much trouble. He does not drive it with a whip. He does not even try to lead it home. In his joy, he takes that trembling creature upon his shoulders. If it's bruised and wounded, he gathers it in his arms, pressing it close to his bosom, that the warmth of his own heart may give it life. With gratitude that his search has not been in vain, but bears it back to the fold. That's beautiful. And it's not complicated. 
pretty simple, actually. And it should be standard equipment. In His grace, He seeks after us and rescues us. He bears us on His shoulders and He brings us close to His heart and restores us as His child. Lastly, God loves to celebrate. For some, this is a hard picture of God. God doesn't smile. Are you kidding me? He invented the smile. It's his idea. And he loves to celebrate. What are we going to celebrate? Anything. Find something. And let's celebrate it. I'm so glad you came back to church today. Come on over. Well, we weren't planning. Oh, we got it all worked out. And you're going to come. We're going to have your favorite food. Well, I already came with these people as well. They can come too. We're going to celebrate. You can leave out the lost and the found bit. But celebrate. Jesus loves to celebrate. We don't, I'm convinced we don't celebrate enough. We'll work our tail off for this huge initiative. And then when it's done, we just go, oh, in the chair. And we go, whew, glad that's over. Where's the celebration of a job well done by God's grace? Look what we've been able to achieve. Praise the Lord. Celebration. Every Sabbath morning should be a celebration of who God is. For how he's worked, for what he's done, what he is doing. I believe God loves to celebrate. And what's heaven going to be besides a big celebration? Well, there's going to be some serious times. Of course there will. But don't you think for a minute there's not going to be celebration. And these last few verses, I just have a hard time putting, wrapping my mind around it. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep which was lost. And I say to you likewise, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Let's go back now. Just think about yourself. Just you. In your own experience. When did God throw you a party? When did you make that decision? When was it real for you? When did you say the prayer? Well, God didn't throw me a party. You better believe he threw you a party. Is this verse lying? He threw a huge party and all of heaven was rejoicing over little David Wright. And then I turn my back on him and I do all this other stuff and then I come back, another party! David's back! And you sit there and you think, I'm not worthy of a party. You're not. And neither am I. but he gives them anyway. The God of the universe? Yeah, but that's one of my kids. See, and he was lost. And now he's found. And I don't think I can contain myself. We're having a party. The parable challenges us, if you haven't got already, to live God's character today by tenaciously pursuing the lost. They're everywhere. By abundantly being gracious with people and by celebrating well. This family, I share this with their permission our conference president, Elder Louie, and his wife. This is his daughter, Catherine, the mother in the picture, and her husband, Greg. And this is this last Christmas. And this was a special Christmas because they decided everything was just right. It's time for us to get another family pet. I think they already had a dog, but they were going to get this puppy. And so they chose this particular dog, and they had it all secret. And so it was a little bit early. It wasn't quite, quite on Christmas, but they surprised the girls with this puppy. Named her Belle. And she's a cute little puppy. There she is meeting the other family pet. But I mean, that just looks like a teddy bear, doesn't it? Doesn't even look real. And so they loved on Belle. All since last Christmas. And then this summer came, only just about a month ago. 
And they went to visit Greg's family. Greg's family lives in California. So they all hopped in on an airplane. They traveled all the way there. They had just gotten there, more or less, still trying to get over jet lag. And then Fourth of July comes, which was on a Sabbath this year. And since so many of the the big uh, firework displays were nixed, a lot of people were doing their own thing. And so apparently there was enough of that going on here back home with the dog sitter that was watching over Belle. That as they were trying to take her out to do her business, some boom, boom, boom. I heard some at my house. Maybe you did it at yours. Well, Belle took off. Gone. And they looked and they looked and they called and they called. But it doesn't help when they boom, boom, boom. And no sign of this dog anywhere. The dreaded phone call. Uh, Catherine? Yeah, is everything Okay. Uh, well, not exactly. What happened? Well, Belle is gone. Gone? What do you mean she's gone? When did she take off? How long has she been away? And after processing this, it didn't take long for Catherine to say, I got to go back. No one's going to search for this dog like I'm going to search for this dog. And Greg agreed. He said, okay. Got her the first flight they could find. She got the red eye. Maybe it wasn't quite the red eye. All day Sunday, but she got here very late on Sunday night into Greenville. Her mother picked her up, and starting Monday, they're back up in Candler where this dog was being watched. They don't live in Candler, but that's where uh, they were boarding their dog. And so they're, they're up looking, talking to the neighbors. They talk to people. They've done all kinds of searches. If you hang some of your clothes out for your scent, and maybe some bed sheets, they got permission. They're doing all this. They're searching the woods across on the other side. Nothing. Nothing's changed. They're putting signs up and hoping people will see and call and report. Tuesday comes. They're getting more nervous. They hire a professional tracker with the dogs and the whole thing. And, you know, smell the the bed here. And I want you to go and, and try and find. And as much as they try to transfer that smell, and these people came very highly recommended, somehow they weren't finding anything. At the end of Tuesday, still discouraged, The tracker says, you know, I saw like one sign, but on the other side of town, I didn't see any. You need to put up more signs, lots of signs. People are going to be the way you're going to find this dog because my trackers can't do anything. So that's what they did. They started making signs, 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 putting them up, putting them up, putting them up. A door-to-door campaign, knocking on doors. I think they were doing this already. But they just kept looking and looking and pursuing, putting up more things. It was on Facebook. Maybe you saw it. Anybody see this? Bell missing? A few of you did. They were talking about Elizabeth's work. Then, it was on Wednesday, Catherine got a call. Somebody had sighted the dog, the little puppy, by Interstate 40 by the way station. (gasps) Oh, the interstate. (laughs) She rushes over there. She looks and looks and looks and looks. Nothing. But they find in the culvert some little puppy tracks. Could this be Belle? Is she here somewhere? They keep looking. They keep searching. Still nothing. The tracker had also given the advice, don't keep calling for Belle because she's so scared at this point, you will scare her away. You're going to just have to find her. Day after day, they keep waiting, keep waiting, keep waiting. Amazingly, God keeps sending rainbows, though. As they would see a rainbow and say, well, there's still hope. Let's keep looking. Finally, on Thursday, they feel, we just need to go out to the woods. Let's keep looking in the woods. A couple people hiking the trail. They're starting to help look in the woods at this point. They heard about it. They were already out looking, actually. She's on the phone with Greg, maybe middle of the day or late morning. I don't know which. And they've been praying and praying, Lord, send us your angels. Guide us to where Belle is. You know exactly where Belle is. Take us to where this dog is. You know, the kids keep asking, Mommy, have you found the dog yet? Not yet, honey. Crying on the phone. So she tells her husband, Greg, on Thursday, she says, if we find this dog, it's going to be nothing short of a miracle. No sooner had she said those words... Her phone rings. Hey, Greg, somebody's calling. I gotta go. Hello? Yeah, there's a sighting in our neighborhood. 
my son has seen it. He's autistic. Uh, and he said at the beginning of the day that he was absolutely certain that he would find your dog. He's been seeing the window all day looking, and we were all kind of skeptical. But he claims to have seen your dog. What's your son's name? Gabriel. Are you anywhere in the area? Yes, we are. We're only five minutes away. We'll be there. Boom. Okay, they're there. They're looking. They're looking. They're looking. Where's Belle? Where's Belle? Where's Belle? Can't find her. Well, we think she went that way. Off into the woods they go. They're still praying. They're still looking. They're still searching. And then, Catherine's mom, Mrs. Louie, she whispers, Catherine, And she looks, and she sees Belle in the woods, scared, shaking. He said, don't find her in a big group. Okay, everybody, go over there, go over there. And she didn't want to approach the dog too much for fear it would run away. She didn't want to call the dog for the same reason. So she went just a little ways, and she sat down. And Greg had read something online, if you sing, they can remember the songs and so on. They used to sing lullabies to their girls at night, they probably still do, and the dog was there. So she sits on the ground and she's singing lullabies, trying to sing lullabies. (laughs) And Belle starts to come, just a timid step, waiting, timid step, waiting, until finally... Belle gets up close enough to Catherine that she takes the leash or the, yeah, the leash and clips it on the collar. And she says, when I heard it go, clink. She said, I just cried. I just cried. Because we had looked so hard for this dog. But it was at that moment that her lost puppy was found. And I heard that story and I thought, what a perfect example of the love of our Heavenly Father that left heaven and makes every effort to bring us home. Friends, Jesus is the Good Shepherd. And He's in pursuit this morning of all of His kids. And if one is lost, he doesn't draw back. No, he pushes more forward all the more. He doesn't sleep, he doesn't slumber until he finds that lost sheep. Until he finds you and brings you home to which heaven throws a party. Because that which was lost has been found. 1 John 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Isn't God good? Isn't He gracious to seek after us. Dear Heavenly Father, all of us have been lost at one point or another, but you chose to pursue and to seek after us. And in your grace, in your mercy, in your forgiveness, you have redeemed us. You have called us your child. You've thrown a party for us. Now, Lord, may we seek after the lost. By your power, by your help, by your strength, may we be your hands and feet, and may we not be indifferent to those around us, but use every means at our disposal to seek and to save, to have the character of Jesus, we pray in your name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.